Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, a discussion now that uh, I think I've been trying to make the point. I don't make it as well as our next guest um, because this is a discussion that I think has sort of slipped past a lot of people in the frenzy to address climate change. We talk about reducing oil and gas use, right? Okay, well and good. Transitional economy. But while you're scaling that down, demand is continuing to increase and will for some time, depending on who you talk to. Could be 10 years, could be 20 years before we reach peak demand. So when you're making it harder and harder and harder to actually access the oil and gas, especially in our part of the world, where is that increased demand going to come from? That is the topic of a piece by our next guest, who is Eric Nuttall. He's a partner and senior portfolio manager with Nine Point Partners LP. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Happy to be with you. So in your mind, we're sort of hurtling ourselves right into an energy crisis, right? Yeah, I think it's inevitable. And there's a few reasons for that, but it comes down to energy ignorance, meaning most people, frankly, don't understand how entrenched the usage of oil and hydrocarbons are in our lifetimes, and you know, most people think it's just for cars, and of course we'll mm-hmm. be driving electric cars in a few years due to government policy. And yet when you step back and recognize just how much our lifestyles are completely dependent upon oil uh, use, the challenge that we're having is that government policy is trying to impact demand, which I think will be 15 to 20 years from now. And yet the uncertainties that that's causing in the investment community is having an impact today. And so the line that I use is the fear of peak demand is leading to the reality of peak supply. This worry about, well, what does demand look like 10, 15 years from now is having an immediate impact now. And so, yes, I do think that ultimately we will see all-time high oil prices in the next couple of years. Yeah, so when we take a look at it, let's just talk about peak demand for a second. You know, like I said, some people say 10 years, some people say 20, 39, depending on who you talk to. But regardless, it's it's a ways out yet. So in terms of how much more production, where are they saying we're going to top out at? How far do we have to go before we actually get to peak demand? I think we're looking at about 15 years from now. Okay. Uh, you know, modeling that far out is next to impossible because of the, the number of variables. But a great um, a study that I referenced in the Financial Post article is done by Sanford Bernstein, a guy that I, whose work I really respect. And so they assumed, let's just assume we hit all government policies in terms of electric car traction, uh, moderating the uh, demand for oil as econ- economies grow you know, recognizing that global population is going to grow pretty meaningfully between now and 2050, hydrogen usage, et cetera. And he pointed to about 2034, 2035. But I think a key misunderstanding is, well, what happens when we do reach peak oil uh, demand? Does that mean the prices suddenly have to collapse? And when you think about it, the the very clear answer to that uh, question is no, we can reach peak oil demand and yet the oil price can still go up. And that's kind of my base assumption because, again, if demand is falling, but supply is falling faster, there's ongoing continued upward pricing pressure on uh, the price. And I just don't think that's a dynamic that people can easily wrap their heads around. You know, I think for a lot of people, even who 
are in support of the transition or or whatever you want to call it, that transitional economy, there, there's a recognition among some people that, you know what, what you're talking about, uh, as much as you would like it to happen tomorrow, it simply can't. We're talking about decades out. So it seems to be there's a lot of neglect to that that transitional period that both things need to work hand in hand if we aren't all going to suffer greatly. Just talk about some of the limitations that this rush to uh, a green world and a, a new climate change policy and all the rest of that stuff has put on what we do, especially here in, in this country, in terms of supplying world oil demand, because it really affects how we go about doing that business. Without question. And again, let's step back and say, how is oil used? And so 60% is transportation, 40% is non. And so when we look at the non-transportation, so we're talking about plastics, chemicals, lubricants, etc. Yes, we can all stop consuming plastic straws, but in the end of the day, Demand for 40% of total usage is driven by population growth and economic growth. And so unless we all are going to tremendously sacrifice our lifestyles, which is not a choice that will be made willingly, that segment of demand will continue to grow for the foreseeable future. When we think about transportation, you know, what are the alternatives? We know cars are about 27%. We know government policy is taking us in Canada towards full electric by about 2035 on new, new sales. Globally, there's over a billion cars to be displaced, and total electric car sales last year were 5 million. And so clearly, it's going to be ramping, but we're talking several decades before you displace usage there. Competing uh, sources would be like hydrogen, but we're talking, again, several decades. And so every alternative to oil that's feasible, we're talking about, you know, the 2030s, 2040. But what I see in front of me, again, is the lack of available capital from investors, the lack of willing capital from banks the inability of companies to invest enough because they, are, they have investors saying, well, geez, I, I don't know what demand is like in 10, 15 years. I need to get paid now. And so we're seeing companies prioritize uh, dividends and share buybacks over drilling. And so, you know, where is the incremental oil going to come from? It's challenged to, to answer that. OPEC, I think, is out of spare capacity by the end of next year. Uh, they've had the inability to invest as they've struggled with low oil prices and have to uh, satisfy a social spending lest you know you get regime change and you end up hanging from a light post uh, like happened to Gaddafi and so where else can supply come from it's not coming from Canada meaningfully you know incrementally it's not coming from the super woke you know eurocentric companies mm-hmm. like the Royal Dutch Shells and BP they're actually allowing the production to fall to free up capital to invest in solar and wind it's like terrible terrible low margin businesses and it's no longer coming from U.S. shale because investors are saying, we need to get paid now. You need to lower spending and increase dividends. And so it's, it's a real question. Like, I can, no person that spends more than two minutes thinking about this could come to the conclusion that demand is peaking anytime soon. And yet I would really, you know, pause the question, where exactly are the incremental barrels coming from? And so to wrap it up, the energy crisis is going to result in a high enough oil price to kill demand, which I think by extension will kill the global economy. That's another conversation. And so we're talking about an oil price that will, I think, eclipse the prior high. But Eric, I mean, it, it, will, it will kill demand, but at some point that demand, you know, I mean, let's just talk about Canada, for example. That demand, it cannot be, I mean, we may have to pay through the nose to heat our homes, but we're going to have to pay through the nose to heat our homes. Some of these things are bedrock. And until the better way comes along, and like you say, it could be 2030, could be 2040, could be beyond that, um, that demand, you, you cannot eliminate it. It, it. it will persist. 
without question. So the oil price will act as a governor on incremental you know, demand growth. You can't kill base base demand. There's certain activities as we experienced by COVID. Like look at COVID. It was the biggest shock to the global economy in modern history. And yet for only a very short period of time, like we're talking days, if not weeks, total global oil demand maybe fell as much as 30% for a very short period. And so mm-hmm. like the entire global economy ground to a halt. And yet demand only dipped 30%. And so, you know, we look forward and most people think that the, the U.S. economy, Canadian economy, global economy, et cetera, is going to be rebounding and continuing to rebound post-COVID. So, like, you know, if we go back to historical norms of 1 to 1.5 million barrels per day per year of incremental demand within two years. And I'm a guy who kind of does this for a living. I can't identify where those barrels are going to come from. And so if supply can't react to balance the market, then demand, incremental demand growth must. And the only way to impact that is through high enough oil prices where it's just simply too expensive not to heat our homes and not for base economic activity, but maybe you don't go on, you know, the, the trip because sure. the, the cost of airfare is too expensive, et cetera. That's where at the margin you'll have to kill. But again, we're talking at an oil price higher than $150 to get there. Um, last one. So what, the, the way I view it is sort of the reality is the reality. And like you say, the, the, the demand will persist. It will continue. The other one is the aspirational um, world of let's get rid of oil and gas and save the climate. Um, it's really hard to push back against the aspirational goals of, of that movement out there right now. And you see um, big oil, you see banks, as you mentioned, all sort of saying, okay, we're going to play along and we're going to play by your rules of the game. Is there any discussion out there saying, hey, wait a minute, take a look at what's happening here. You're going to put yourself in a spot. Is there any way to push back against that and sort of just say, hey, here's a little reality? Yeah, and this isn't meant to sound like a climate denier because I am not, but we could some could recognize that the, the conversation today has a religious overtone and you dare not challenge it. Yes. So has the pendulum swung so far that anybody is terrified to challenge, you know, what has become the status quo and what has been accepted? I don't think most people would feel that they can freely have such an opinion. And, and by extension, then I, I don't see there being enough support to fight against the, the narrative at this time. Eventually, reality is going to bite us in the in the behind. You know, the the, the cost, the lack of reliability, of power, uh, energy in general. You know, going from energy abundance to energy poverty. But we'll be dealing with that in five years from now. So, you know, my my goal, my target really is to maximize upside capture for my investors from what I think is an inevitability for the oil price. Eric, uh, great discussion. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That is uh, Eric Nuttall, who is a partner and senior portfolio manager with Nine Point Partners LP. And uh, yeah, you can read his, his column in the Financial Post.